Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. My name is Bill Arnett in Improv Merlin, currently a philosophy newt. This is Mark Lintenmeyer, a uh, philosophy, I'm going to say a Sir Galahad. I don't think I go up to the Merlin level, but you know, I try really hard. Interested in becoming what Sir Robin in uh, the Holy Grail movie level in uh, improvisation. My name is uh, Tanner Campbell. I'm the host of the Practical Stoicism podcast, and I am a non-academic American philosopher of Stoicism. We've had a lot of talk on here about Stoicism. Have Billis, would you describe yourself as Stoic curious? Yes, I, I think so. Again, I tease Mark sometimes about wisdom from the ancients. And any topic we have, we talk about what would the ancients say. And I believe Stoicism counts as a ancient wisdom. W-W-T-A-S? Yes. <laughs> yeah, if you're general, then you could probably come up with, okay, what would Diogenes the Cynic do? You could come up with an ancient, probably to fit whatever it is you wanted to do anyway. I guess people say the same thing about what would Jesus do, that what, yes. what is in the Bible is ambiguous enough. And even within the Stoic tradition, it's mm. quite different. What would Marcus Aurelius do versus uh, what would Seneca do versus Epictetus being 100%. sort of the, the most surly the most Epictetus, the oldest one that we have writings of, seems to have the most of the things that people who don't know much about Stoicism would think is wrong with Stoicism, that he actually kind of was an antisocial. I think that the OG of surliness, though, is probably Musonius Rufus, because he, of course, taught Epictetus. So he had to get it from somewhere. Those Roman Stoics, questionable, very questionable. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Practical Stoicism, a podcast that's doing very, very well, but it's only the beginning of 2022, is that right? Yeah, I started in January 2022 and had no, had no ideas of making it popular. It was more of a self-therapy thing for me. I had drifted a bit from my own personal practice and COVID had been a real you know, hassle as it was for everybody. I lost a business, had a car repossessed. I mean, it was a really difficult time. And in that time, I was not focused on my practice. And when I relocated to Denver from Maine after closing that recording studio down, I wound up thinking, man, what's a better way to get back in touch with my practice than promising people I'm going to talk about stoic practice every weekend. And so I started a podcast. That is a great reason to start a podcast. You, yeah. Tanner was just asking me before we uh, pushed record here, what is this thing? How does this relate to the partially examined life? The thing that most people would know me from. And likewise, I was interested in learning about improv. <laughs> and so <laughs> I can't just like go to a class like a normal person. I need to monetize it. I need to <laughs> make it public. If it's not public, it's not real. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is monetized? This is monetized. I didn't... No one told me. It's a little monetized. <laughs> no one told me. Bill has not been getting his cut. <laughs> well, oh, it's swimming in improv dollars. So many improv books. <laughs> it was good to hear that, you know, when we were talking about the initial financial arrangements of this, that your standards were set by improv rather than by something else. Yes. By improv <laughs> as a virtue. Right, Tanner? I do know a little bit. Yes, I think improv would be a subordinate virtue. Sure, I will give you that. There we go. Point, Bill. Also, just wanting to explore practical philosophy and create a show that maybe people more like the demographic that consumes your show, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, people maybe that have not are not going to want to sit down 
and read Mencius for, you know, listen to four hours on him. Maybe that this would be an outlet to that. I don't know that we've really reached too many of those people, but but maybe today's. Anyway, what have you thought about as a practical, has the concept of improv or uh, more generally living in the moment or being able to react to things as they happen? How does that relate to your conception of practical wisdom, the kind of stuff that you're exploring in your podcast? I think it's the execution of any philosophy that you might choose to adopt as a life philosophy. For me, that's stoicism. But I think that what we try to do is make it so that, and just speaking broadly in philosophy, we try to take our life philosophy and be able to execute it in real time. And so I think maybe getting familiar with improvisation in general is something that could work that muscle a little bit, right? Because we're all kind of improving based off of previous experience, our ability to execute and implement our own personal philosophy. So I think there's a connection. I like it. Yeah, that was great. I would concur. It was all improv. <laughs> well, episode one, Mark. So if, if people that you meet on the street are just like, oh, that's like some weird nerdy thing. No, you're doing it right now, unless you're a robot. Mm-hmm. And maybe they, they will. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. And there's the first philosophical question of the episode. <laughs> are we just robots? Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a fun twist on uh, uh, solipsism. Where it's like, no, no, no. There is only one person. Everyone else is robots. But you're one of the robots. Whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> I'm not the real person? No, no, no. No, no, no. Who's the real person? Can't tell you. But you are <laughs> one of the Oh, great. Wonderful. So as a practical measure, I know, uh, so folks should go listen to the Practical Stoicism podcast, but many of the episodes are there are very short philosophy bites, you might call them, that you do a reading and then you do an interpretation of it. Do you write out the interpretations? Do you just wing it and then cut out the blank spaces? That's what I do when I'm monologuing is I just say something and then I'm very quiet for a while until I have the next sentence. And then I just, it's very easy to edit. It's both, actually. On Mondays and Tuesdays, so on Mondays we do a meditation, on Tuesdays we do one of Seneca's letters. So those are both scripted. Because I feel like in order for me to be analytical about it, either one of those things, it's probably not a great idea if I ad-lib it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Wednesdays are interviews, not unlike what we're doing now, although not improv. And then on Thursdays we do a deep dive or a fireside chat with someone about a particular topic, like how stoicism applies to, I think a recent one we did was the job hunt, for example, experiencing difficulty in finding a job. And then on Fridays, we do a mailbag where we do about 10 to 15 questions from the audience. And then on Saturday, we do Practical Buddhism, which is hosted by Emma Varva Lucas from the Progress Network. And on Sunday, we have Eric DeMott do a Practical Cynicism episode, which is great because, as you all know, cynicism is a precursor to stoicism. And he brings in a lot of really dry, wry humor to it. And I don't think there's anybody better to represent Diogenes and the cynics than Eric DeMott. So on Sundays, we kind of mix it up a little bit. And the rest of the time, it's, it's mostly, I mean, it's freewheeling, except for Mondays and Tuesdays, I think. Bill, do you think we should do this as a daily podcast like Tanner does? <laughs> <laughs> daily? Yes. <laughs> Almost daily, right? Five <laughs> days a week. It, it is, is seven days a week. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's utter madness. I wouldn't suggest it, but I've been podcasting since 2010. It's actually not the only daily podcast I have. I have another one called Sleep Stories where people have told me frequently enough that my voice puts them to sleep in what I'm assured is a good way. So I just started reading old classical myths and folk tales because I have a bunch of them. It's one of the kinds of books I collect. And so I do two daily podcasts. So it's madness. Don't do it. <laughs> All right. Kind of a Joe Para talk you to sleep kind of a thing. Okay. Well, really, you know, classic ADHD, trying to be an overachiever, failing frequently. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. So let's get a little concrete stuff about stoicism out there. 
one thing that I have heard is, you know, Stoicism, it all comes down to some version of that serenity prayer. Do you know how that goes, Bill? Uh, Accept what you can't change. Is it that one? Yes. And work hard to change what you can and uh, go to sleep. It's one of those. Is that some of those lines? There's three parts to it. Yes. The serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. The wisdom to know the difference. There it is. Okay. Tanner, is that, do you feel like that is a good characterization of how you see stoicism or is it just, oh, that's just one tiny piece of the puzzle? I mean, it could still, even if that was like the core to talk about how that falls out into practical situations, well, life is infinitely complex. So, you know, you could give as many sermons as you want of, oh, when you meet a bully on the street and now, and when somebody uh, steals your pocket change (laughs) and when you, you know, there, there could be many things where you just, you know, want to repeat this mantra to yourself and maybe stare in the mirror and, you know, come up with variations off it. But is this even an accurate starting point? I think it is a somewhat accurate portion of the starting point, right? When I, when I started Practical Stoicism, I started with meditations because I knew there was a lot I didn't know. And I figured that there was probably less of a chance of me screwing something up really you know, fantastically if I started with something as simple as meditations. And then I attended the College of Stoic Philosophers and took on a couple of mentors and have begun to learn over the last six months or so really how deep the rabbit hole of Stoicism goes. And I find it to be really one of the, maybe this is true of many philosophies, but for me, I've never run into one that has such a specificity of language where the words that we use in it do not mean the things that contemporary times have defined those words as, and it can cause a lot of confusion. So Epictetus kind of did like You can think of Epictetus's thesis as the dichotomy of control, which is kind of what you're talking about there with, except that there are things you can control, things you can't control. More so, what he really said was, there are things that you have the ability to choose and things you do not have the ability to choose. So people say control and power a lot, but Epictetus didn't usually use those words. Uh, He was also different in that he viewed the Stoic God as a personal God, which is not completely unique to him, but mostly unique to him. The biggest part of Stoicism and the thing that sets it apart from, let's say, Aristotelianism is that it says virtue is not the highest good, not a good, but the only good. So that makes it unique. And it means that the focus of the philosophy, really the point of it, every other thing left aside, is to develop a virtuous character or to develop towards a character which is more like a virtuous one than you were 10 days ago. So it really is a, it's a philosophy of high context, because everyone does that different. There is no broad label of how to do X, Y, Z if you're this person, and that would apply exactly the same to someone else. So it's highly contextual, and the whole point of it is to develop a what the Stoics would call a good character, a virtuous character, the ability to be perfectly moral like the Stoic stage, to only make moral decisions and do things in what they call the appropriate way. And of course, that's not something that many people have reached. People talk about Cato the Younger having been a sage. Seneca talks about that. Some people point to Aristotle, but they said that the sage was as rare as the phoenix. And so the point isn't to become a sage, it's to work towards that ideal. And I think that that's, if you're going to take one thing away from Stoicism, it's that it's a virtue ethics framework philosophy that's all about becoming a good person. Sure. I I mean, Mark and I have been doing this for long enough that I am now able to detect and call people out on ill-defined words or concepts that can be pretty... (laughs) you know, context-dependent definition. So virtue and justice and all those things is just, I mean, that's a whole other can of worms, isn't it? 
Well, it is because when people say things like justice is probably my favorite of the four cardinal virtues in contemporary times, people are like, oh, justice. So a judge making a decision and justice is the thing that's the result of the decision. But in stoicism, justice means our everyday dealings with people. Are they fair? Are they kind? That's a kind of justice. So if you're rude to someone, the Stoics would say you were being unjust. You were therefore acting inappropriately and you were moving away from virtue and towards what they called the only bad vice. Sure. What if they deserved it, though? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, maybe then it's appropriate. Who knows? Angry, probably not, because there's it's hard to find a justification under which a sage would be angry in the sense of, I think, that we're thinking of the word angry, outraged, let's say. Sure. But it is definitely appropriate to, there was the Stoic uprising is a rather famous thing that happened in history where a bunch of Stoics stood up to the tyrant and said, we're not going to do this anymore. And whether or not those actions are appropriate are determined by the role of the individual. So if you're a citizen who is in a position to be affected by something the government is doing that is having a negative impact on your life and the life of others, and you are capable of going and holding a sign and you feel like assigning the role of yourself as an advocate or an activist, then it is absolutely appropriate to do that. It's a huge misunderstanding of Stoicism that Stoics don't care to get involved in those things. It's only that we care to reason carefully to make sure that we're the best person to get involved in whatever that thing is. And if we're not, then we try to fill the roles that we view ourselves to be best fit for and do those things. Right. The courage to change the things I can, that might actually include a lot. It sort of depends on, you know, Stoicism is, is thought as in its origins as perhaps something that was invented by slaves, right? To deal with the fact, I'm a slave, I don't actually have any real political power, but I can change myself. I can still live a happy life. And that would give the impression that, you know, maybe just (laughs) accept things as they are. But the more that you think that you can change, you know, the fact that we are fortunate enough to be in a situation that Mm -hmm. we can actually, you know, so by the time we get to Marcus Aurelius, you know, he's an emperor, he can change a lot. (laughs) Yes. He has enormous power. And so one of the people we had in the Partial Examined Life, as I guess, was Ryan Holiday, who's one of these folks. Part of what maybe has given Stoicism, I don't know, a bad name or a mixed reputation or something recently is just the way it's been used politically is that a lot of very powerful people say Stoicism is the thing that I use to, you know, Mm. rewrite the operating system of my brain to be as effective (laughs) as possible. And, you know, so there are some questions as to it is a very adaptable point of view. Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Nietzsche had a similar problem, didn't he? Nietzsche's criticism of Stoicism as passive, as I think there's the idea that, you know, when I said rewriting the operating system of your brain, this is maybe as a philosopher, the thing that I most object to is the idea that the best way to change yourself is by saying daily affirmations in the mirror, is to Mm. know proper doctrine (laughs) and repeat it over and over again to yourself. Because I don't think that's how psychology works. And I don't think that's how ancient Stoics following Aristotle thought that doctrine actually works. That Aristotle was also about virtue, virtue, virtue. Plato was about that as well. But Aristotle sort of created this language of talking about how to train ourselves to be able to make the virtuous choice. That, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just a matter of practicing virtue. That's important. But exercising, you know, basic keeping yourself physically healthy keeping yourself mentally acute, like all these things give you the tools to be able to then resist temptation to do what you actually think you should be doing. So it's a very sideways approach, a therapeutic approach, rather than just, oh, you just don't know the truth yet. You're just not enlightened Mm -hmm. yet. Like it's that Mm -hmm. sort of religious take on stoicism that I think 
is rife in the popular vernacular of stoicism and that I think sort of in quotes, real philosophers object to, right? They don't object to you reading the classic stoic texts. Those are part of the philosophical canon and they relate in lots of interesting ways to Aristotle, to Nietzsche, to Schopenhauer, a later definitely stoic philosopher. But yes, if it's pop philosophy, if it's pop psychology, there are some things that can go wrong. Let's say that. There are some things that can go wrong. I mean, you brought up Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday's book, Obstacle is the Way, that whole book is written and doesn't use the word virtue a single time in it. So I absolutely agree with what you're saying, that we have this popularization of stoicism, which is useful if it's the surface level of the depth of the pool, right? And so that there's something you can lead them into afterwards to say, okay, we've we've said some low-hanging fruit, surface-level kind of stuff to get you interested and to help you figure out whether or not stoicism is going to be something that's useful to you beyond being a life hack, which is, I think, how Ryan Holiday kind of approaches that. And no judgments, maybe that's what some people are looking for, but people who are either A, looking to adopt stoicism as a serious life philosophy or criticize it have a lot of work to do to be able to do either one of those things well. And you mentioned that part of it is this didactic learning, although you didn't use the word didactic. I think that's what you were getting at. And then the other half of it is the practice, what the ancients would have called prosake, the act of paying attention to something. You have to practice it. That's the test. It's kind of like being a Christian. Okay, you can accept that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and say that out loud. Just like you can call yourself a Stoic because you believe virtue is the only good, the real thing that set them apart from the Aristotelians, for example, but not the cynics. And you can say that and technically be a Christian. You can say that and technically be a Stoic. But then there's the things you're supposed to do if you mean those things seriously. And in uh, in Christianity, obviously, it's the tenets of whatever the tenets are in the gospel. I'm myself, I'm not a Christian, and I don't know them that well. <laughs> but in Stoicism, it's the act of prosake, constantly asking yourself, paying attention to your actions, your thoughts, and your attitudes and positions, and asking yourself, instead of what would Jesus do, you ask yourself, what does this action, thought, or attitude have about my character? What does it say about my character? And if it says something bad, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And if it says something good, then move ahead. That's the real arbiter. Because the Stoics hate Jesus. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they definitely, they were like, you know what? <laughs> Although, I, and I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who came up with neo-Stoicism. He was a Christian who tried to marry the two. And then on his deathbed, he was like, "Uh, you know what, I'm not going to risk it. Very Pascal's wagery of him. He's like, yeah, Stoicism, yeah, we're going to go full Christian now. There are definitely places of overlap. For one thing, just the stress toward virtue. You know, there are some things that I can't control. There's also, you know, what I was complaining about, sort of maybe you could call them new age Stoics. Like, I've transformed my brain. I'm like, you know, it's like Dianetics. I'm a clear now. There's versions of Christianity that do that as well. You know, oh, you've accepted the Lord and Jesus into your heart. Now all of your problems are solved. But honest, mature people of either, of any faith, realize that, no, no, it is an ongoing struggle. And I think this model that you just said, Tanner, of the sage, the perfect model of what you're shooting for is going to be very rare and maybe even impossible. It's just you think the idea of having something to shoot for is useful for life. Yes, very Christian-y. I'm very not sure of that path. myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the idea of what Nietzsche actually advocated of playing with multiple possible things to shoot for, that there are so many ways to be an amazing individual. An well, overmatch. Well, yes, yeah. that he purposely doesn't define what that mm-hmm. is because it comes down to some sort of, it's an individual journey. 
yes, okay, so there are things to criticize about that. And what if you want to become the most awful person and, and overcome traditional <laughs> right. morality and, and throw virtuous, but you know, those are generally regarded by Nietzsche scholars as not good interpretations of Nietzsche. There are just as you could be an asshole stoic that <laughs> you could, like, yes, you yeah, could. you could be an asshole. Nietzsche not that I there. know any in particular, <laughs> but yes. Have we come to the time? Usually this is, you know, we've made you feel very comfortable talking about the things you're Let's make you deeply uncomfortable by, oh, by yes. getting into this thing that Bill has what's been said here, given you an idea for something you can start us on. Oh, is that what he's scribbling long. over there? Is he taking notes on how to embarrass me? You're giving me the stoic cold <laughs> shower here. This is what's happening. I was listening and watching some of your podcasts. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, did my, I did my homework uh, and I have some questions. I have some good. I think I have some good questions. Gosh, I hope I have good answers. You could ask them through the improv. One of my knee jerk things when I hear philosophies that are very personal is that and again we can discuss this after the scene or maybe this will form the scene it can be a little hermit on the mountainy that got me thinking about well what is it especially in an improv scene that defines the scene what is it that actually holds the meaning of it and mark may know some of these answers but i'm going to do a little technique here a technique at the beginning of the scene to try to forward that quickly I don't know if you've improvised before or have any experience. No. I mean, I live. I'm a, I'm a person who's, who's living. <laughs> <laughs> you've been improvising. Uh, the style we do and the style I like is closer to a slice of life. Now, there may be some heightened versions of life, some ridiculous situations, but feel free to treat them as though they're actually happening. No, it's a shame I'm not a cynic. I feel like I might do this better if I was a cynic. Yeah. <laughs> but believe I've met some pretty miserable, cynical improvisers <laughs> who aren't willing to get their hands dirty and really get in there because they don't believe they refuse to believe that something fake could be real. So, Mark, if you want to get this thing going, my technique that I want to use is not does not involve the beginning of the scene. All right. So, you know the drill. Your belongings are they're in the overhead. You know, I didn't actually bring the uh, <laughs> I didn't bring the the script for this, but you guys already know the drill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, there's exits there and there. Uh huh. Uh huh. And uh, if. <laughs> this ain't my first rodeo, pal. Do you have to? Do you have something to contribute? Do you want to add some of the the features? There are features of the aircraft. There are lights that will uh, guide you uh-huh. to the Illuminate nearest exit. You to the nearest exit. Yeah. Bear in mind, the nearest exit could be behind you. Okay. The, there, there I have are all the, of the frequent flyer miles. Let me just say it right now. I have all of them. There are tighter than needs be seat belts. Those are certainly there. They're adjustable. Um, if you need to get out, are they? You need How to. How uh, adjustable are they? Here, let me, let me, I do have the prop here. So you can, if you want to buckle your seatbelt and you, and you have to do it, it's the law. You put the one side, the buckle, slide the flat metal plate into, into the, the buckle, into the buckle, and then you pull it tight. You know, only the tightness it, that will make you It's the pulling and the tightness that I think is my primary concern. What if there's no room to pull it tighter because it's already been, you know, pushed to the max? Well, Mark, our steward, should have a seatbelt extender in one of the overheads. Am I right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a thing okay, that we use for right. passengers that have that need. Um, you also can, I know a lot of times people try to use the wrong seatbelt. They use it from the, it could be that it's not reaching because you're using the one like from the seat next to you. Is that, sure, is that possible? Can, can you just, let, let's get to the oxygen mask and let's get this bird in the air. All right. All right. Let's, yeah. let's make this happen. Um, if something goes wrong, an oxygen mask will fall. You know, they don't fall. That's not really a accurate representation of the Trump. Do they, they kind more of, like tumble? Is it a tumbling? I would say they unfold, mm. you know, in a, in a, cause falling implies like 
it's going to be on the ground. You got to dig around. You got to right. find it. And there's no lighting on the floor to tell you where the oxygen mask that is falling. It's going to it's going to hit you in the face. I've I've actually had this happen thrice. That's how much I fly. They do kind of unfurl. It'll smack you right on the forehead. You're not going to miss it. I like the terminology unfurl. It sounds very elegant and uh, you know, just it sounds more sounds more magical when something unfurls than falls or even tumbles. I mean, on elegant air, that is kind of what we're mm. about. I, that's, You're right. I forgot that. You know, there's a person, is this y'all's first flight? Is this y'all's first flight? Is this this is I? my first time reading the thing, but you know, I didn't bring the text. I, I just this, figure everybody, nobody listens to this. Anyway, everybody, you're the only two people that actually seem to be engaging with me. Every single <laughs> other person on the plane I see is looking at a device, is doing something that's not paying attention to me. So this I think is we in can fact my first want. flight, and I'm, I'm worried that I don't even have the right visa to get off the plane when we arrive to where we're going. I mean, Mexico City. Have you ever you seen? Should be, you should be okay. You, you've seen the Terminal, that film, the Tom Hanks film. You know, so you might end up if you can't, don't have the visa yeah. for the, the country. You might end up just having to live in the terminal. But that's really not an elegant error. We uh, deny the existence of poverty. We make the prices high, so only a certain class of people get on. You know, mm-hmm. the kind that uh, you know can eat well enough often to need the extra the seatbelt right. extender. Mark, I'm sorry to do this again, but uh, and there's a blue binder over in the coat closet that contains Visa pre-clearance cards, and you're supposed to give those out before we land. You really know your stuff. You're bit, you, I know. My, I have all the freaking flyer miles. I just said that. All right. Did you, yeah, it's also odd that you're giving this uh, talk two hours into our fight. <laughs> I guess I forgot to do it when we took off. And so, Are you new, Mark? I, Is this yeah, your first flight? So... Normally, they keep me under, you know, in the bottom. So I kind of look after the dogs and that are in the crates and mm. stuff. But I, I, they felt like this was a pretty, you know, this is an overnight flight. People are pretty sleepy and, uh, you know, they'd be fine. I have a comment card if you want to fill it out. I would love to, please. Thank you. All right. This is in a language I don't recognize. Do you have one in English or? Yeah, I mean, you kind of know, don't you know, you know, the deal comment cards. Like it's just. You just kind of express yourself and <laughs> fill in uh, those the, things where I think they go. Mallow. Yeah. The bubbles, the ones mm-hmm. to the right, those are better. So like, okay, just, just to the, I, cause I know I don't speak tag along, but I kind of know the, the comic card. Do you think that your flight attendant was not prepared enough to not show you the correct procedures on the airplane? Mm-hmm. Mark, you kind of just. You're kind of embarrassing yourself. You've missed the pre-flight thing we've discovered. You don't have the English comment cards. I would just quit while you're ahead, okay? You think you should jump? I, I j- jump? No, not jump. Just sit in the little, in the jump seat. Have, okay. Look, on, okay. on an elegant air, we have, go up to the galley, we only have enough parachutes in. for first class. So oh, if well, what, really what going class up, am I in? What is this? I thought this was business. What am I in? I mean, business, yes. But in front of the curtain that's in front of us, you probably noticed you passed about six different sections as you went down. I, so there's, I did, yeah. There's first class is above this, but above first class is a premier elegant elegante. Hmm. And then above that, it's actually just a couple of rows that are uh, royalty. Oh, all the purple I saw. That explains it. Yes. Yeah. There's a geodesic dome that covers each uh, set of drink service. Drink service. Oh, uh, yeah. The, it's, it's, it's time for drink service. Okay. Um, I'll go look up there. I think we have something. I mean, yeah, get the galley most card. of the time, by the time the card gets back here, we've sort of given away 
most of the good stuff. But like, you mm-hmm. know, on Elegante Air, there's enough air for everyone. Well, as a Stoic, I'll just take uh, some warm temperature water. No ice. Thank you. That, that would be fine. Okay. We can definitely do that, sir. What do you have? Uh, Jack and Coke. Oh, well, let me think if that would be appropriate. I'm going to go ahead and say no to that, please. Just just regular water would be fine. So you're saying he can't have Jack and Coke? Oh, whether or not Bill Because that's kind of beyond your control. That's between him and me. But if you're a conscientious objector and have some uh, sort of argument, I mean, I if you feel like his Bill, drunkenness. Can, can we sidebar here, Bill? Uh, sure. Hey, hasn't your wife been rather upset with you, with your drinking? <laughs> what bill pays the bills? <laughs> Okay, this well, does. all right. It, that's certainly your choice, Bill. I just want to be the little guy on your shoulder asking if you're sure that's the appropriate way to act here. I'm not flying home to her. I'm flying off to work. Okay. In Mexico City, all right. All right, well, what stays in Mexico happens in Mexico or vice versa? I'm not going to say that. I'm just saying Okay. we're at 40,000 feet. Mm-hmm. I'd love, love to see her hurl a rolling pin this high. Okay. Uh, yes, but we're still, even though we're in we're in elegant airspace, I, I think we're still flying within the realm of, uh, let's say, virtue airspace. Hmm. Okay. Um, who would be hurt by my actions and Just, who would be helped by my actions? No one and me. Those are the answers to that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable with the compromisation of your character if you if you have this uh if you have this drink bill my character is i want a jack and coke while i'm flying i fly a lot i fly a ton i know what i'm capable of i know what my boundaries are look i'm meeting a client at the gate all right i'm not going to be plowed all right okay all i right. mean no, i'm not sure what you're doing in mexico uh mark we're not done hold on mark. okay all right you're, you're, right. you're yep. good bill yep. i'm great okay all right mark i think he's going to do a double is what he's decided. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, here, here, here you go. Then now, normally this is something reserved for first class, but I'm pretty inspired by this talk of virtue here. And uh, one thing you could do is we could put the double in front of you and you could see how long you cannot drink it. Ooh. And then when, when you feel like you've, you know, really earned it, then drink it down. But like, it, it will really, you've achieved something. If you land, Bill, and you haven't had your drink, well... You won't. You still won't get to have it, but you'll probably feel really good about yourself. I doubt all of those things. Okay, Mark, you have a whole plane of passengers that need to be serviced, right? When I was giving you suggestion for the drink cart, wasn't for me. It was for everybody else, all right? Well, I don't want you very, to get fired. That's man. very selfless. Okay. That's uh... and when you make your way back here, let's do it with that double. I'll pound it. I'll get about three hours of sleep. Wake up refreshed. Brush my teeth into the lav. Meet that client with a firm handshake, and get on with my life. How does that sound? That sounds great to me, Bill. Boom. You've earned a, you can go sit up front with that attitude. I'm sorry, it's, Tanner. I, I, I understand, sir, that, uh, you know, you having the, the lavish lifestyle above the merely business class might uh, mm-hmm. compromise your virtue. But, uh, do you want to go one, one of those geodesic domes? I mean, there's, there's one that's open there and, uh, there's actually spigots of, of bourbon and other, other hard spirits just, just coating the wall of the dome and you can just, you don't even have to wait for me to serve you. That does sound pretty tempting. Can, can I ask, uh, I'm not part of your frequent flyer program here on Elegant Air. Uh, is anybody else uh, within business class or let's say even coach or uh, coach plus? There's is anybody no, there no interested coach. in moving coach, up to the... Coach is uh, where the dogs are down underneath. Have um, you ever put a dog in one of those geodesic domes? Sometimes they're like helper animals or something. What's great about the domes is that, you know, really wealthy people, they can bring on birds because otherwise the birds would like 
be all over the, the, the cabin. But, you know, it, it really is, it's, it's very convenient for really any kind of wildlife below a certain size. Well, I'm going to move up. <laughs> if no one else is sitting there, why not me? So, uh, just excuse me here, Mark. I'm gonna... oh, oh, sorry, Bill. Sorry, go ahead. Don't spill your drink. Oh, wait, you don't have it yet. Don't have it yet. Um, you hear that, Mark? Doesn't have it yet. Doesn't have it yet. Oh, I can't, oh. Be, can't be treating him like that now that he's in first class. All right. Well, the spigots are up there and you, sir, can, uh, we're just going to wheel a trough of the water down and you could just kind of lick out of it as it goes past. <laughs> hey, we'll stop right there. All right. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> Good seeing everybody. Good fun. Well done, Tanner. Easy, hard, nice. medium. Oh, I always think I'm performing under what everyone hopes I am. So. <laughs> well, I, sure. I appreciated, at least theoretically, we're supposed to use these scenes to uh, investigate the philosophical questions in, you know, that we've been bringing up. Bill is also, as a matter of don't be such a control freak, has encouraged me to not just impose, you know, this is going to be, we're going to do a thought experiment. And you're going to act out the parts and you're going to, you know, and I know the answer already. Like, so uh, it seemed to have a good balance just going in there with some thirst, some thirst for virtue talk. Yes. And if we are all people and have a behavior and have something around us, well, then we can can always have that conversation. I'm actually interested, Bill, in in that case. I mean, you're playing out that you're playing devil's advocate, obviously, in, in that situation. Or were you? Again, I didn't start knowing what I'd be doing. Mm hmm talking about the immediacy that's required in improv. Now, there is a little lesson here, and maybe uh, maybe we will, I don't know if we want to save it or let the cat out of the bag. Mark, how do you feel? Should we let the cat go? Is it virtuous to keep a cat in a bag? Or is I, that- I feel like we should guess. I mean, <laughs> Depends is this, if the cat's dead or not. <laughs> the, the technique that you started of the laughing, I felt like that was, a, that was a tool for our improv toolkit, is just before you even know what's going on, have an emotional reaction, and just let that be one of the foundational things that will determine... Yes, and from that, no idea how Mark would finish the story or or where he would go, but I was able to build a person, what I felt to be a coherent person. And that person ended up being, within the first four or five lines, road warrior, just kind of larger than life, douchey road warrior guy. Mm. Now, how does this guy feel about stoicism or stoic philosophy? How does he fit in? No idea, because I'm just busy being over-the-top road warrior guy who's just loud and gregarious and probably in sales. Let's be honest. This guy's in sales. <laughs> Having worked as a Motorola field technician for many years in a previous lifetime, I, I can say it wouldn't have to be in sales. It could also be in IT. It could also be a field tech. <laughs> Granted. But if stoicism ends up making its way into that conversation, well, that's you know all well and good. But this person doesn't have an agenda. They're just they're who they are. Does that make sense? So yeah, so you become a character almost like you you are birthing the character right there. They have no backstory that you have not created. Correct. Love that. I'm not good at that. Took me a minute to realize we were improvising, to be honest with you. <laughs> Fair enough. I, Mark has gotten better at it. I've very much appreciated Mark's work. Now, Mark, I think I would definitely say that you're, you may have had some stoic things going into your character, but I did not detect them right away. If they were in there. Uh, no, it's too difficult for me, especially with that where you made me start and I just did not think about it even for a second. Like I'm just actually That's going totally to fine. say the first thing that Kim comes into my head yeah. and you know thought that would be fruitful. And, so just was trying to find like, I know we're going to circle back to it. I know, you know, so the thing about warm water and just all the stuff that Tanner was throwing in was, was, it was very helpful. Yeah. One of the things in terms of the improv that I've sort of had to get over or I'm, I'm coming to terms with is what I'm going to dub a sweat hog scenario. So if you're familiar with the show, Welcome Back, Cotter. 
Yes. <laughs> That's so then funny. he's talking to the Cotter is talking to a, a whole room full of students, but only four of them ever talk. The four sitting in the back. The other students are dead silent the whole time. They're just ignored. And I guess that's fine. And you're just supposed to. <laughs> and it's a little too difficult, you know, unless uh, Bill had felt the need to be a third character or something to uh, involve all the other passengers. So we're just going to ignore them. And maybe that will be a, a topic of conversation that we're ignoring them. But uh, sure. it's fine. <laughs> I need to stop here and tell you about the psychology podcast with Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a cognitive scientist who writes and researches on intelligence, creativity, and human potential. Psychology podcast will give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. In each episode, Scott explores the depths of human potential by talking to inspiring scientists, thinkers, and other self-actualized individuals. For example, Scott has interviewed renowned psychotherapist and author Esther Perel about love and relationships. He's also interviewed biologist David Sinclair about aging and longevity, and Amanda Knox about trauma. Listen to the Psychology Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Bill, Mark, as an I feel like I would be somehow not being a great friend to a troop of friends I have that do improv work for their podcast. It's called Pod Cube. And I think that you would both really enjoy it. They do a terrifically fun job. It's all sound designed and stuff. And I just wanted to say that before I forgot to say it to you. Well, I will Get that plug in there. No worries. It's send them our, our info. You love them. Now, something I, I mentioned earlier, this whole notion of if you're so worried about working on yourself, do you are you even aware of the state of the world? Is that a legitimate ding on stoicism or does stoicism have an answer to it or is that a misreading in your opinion of stoicism i think it's not necessarily a misreading it's a shallow reading i i think that the response to that would be well so for example just then when i mentioned my friend's podcast it, it came to me and i asked myself what it might say of me to not mention it oh well maybe if i didn't do that that would not be me being a particularly good friend i've thought of it i should mention it and if i don't then i've maybe done something that uh, maybe isn't working towards being a good friend or being having a good character so I, I think anything that's going on in the world the question that we ask ourselves is by ignoring this what does that action that choice say about our character and in that way i mean i think that probably shows how contextual stoicism can be but also how not about withdrawal from society it is. In fact, the thing that really separates stoicism from cynicism is that the cynics are more, well, not go live in the forest by themselves like a hermit because my friend Eric, who I mentioned earlier, who does the practical cynicism segment on Sundays, he views Diogenes as being not a method actor, but he views him as being like an interpretive art kind of actor where he is in the city because it's where he can do the absurd things that provide the education to the people who live in the city. So the, the lesson is not, in cynicism, to be Diogenes. It's to learn the lessons that Diogenes is teaching you. Society is silly. These things that you're hung up on about you know pooping in the street, because he's done that a number of times. That those social norms, that those moorings, are, they're not real, and you need to stop thinking about them that way. And that's cynicism. So, so cynics wouldn't leave the city per se, but they would be on the outskirts of it making fun of everybody. So they're the, they're the original, they're the original for the lulls group, I think. And yes, and in the way that memes serve a purpose today, I think the Stoics served a pretty, or rather the cynics served a pretty important purpose. But the thing that sets Stoicism apart from that is cynicism says, well, two things. Cynicism says first, if a thing is likely to, uh, there's the story of Diogenes, he has a cup. 
and he's using it to drink out of a puddle. Your listeners may already know this story. And he sees a young boy, impoverished maybe or not, but he comes up and uses his hand to drink out of the puddle instead of a cup. And Diogenes looks at his cup and he just smashes it into a million pieces, thinking, well, what have I become that I've attached myself to this cup when I could just be using my hand? So the cynics would say, virtue is the only good. The cynics say that as well. And the way to best chase it is to abandon anything that would give you any kind of attachment that would steer you away from that or create friction in that process. Where the Stoics take a more practical approach, Zeno took a more practical approach in saying, no, 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 those are opportunities to exercise your virtue. And so it's important to be involved in society, not to withdraw from it and simply mock it. It's at the same time self-centered. It's not selfish, but it's self-centered because you're constantly asking yourself what this thing says about me and this thing that I'm trying to achieve. So that means a side effect of the philosophy is that you you are actually a really seemingly non-self-centric person. In fact, uh, Heracles came up with what were called the Stoic circles of concern, where the self is at the middle. And I thought of it when you were talking about the air mask and you put yours on before you can put anybody else's on, but it's self, family, friends, community, and then Leonidas Constantikos from FIU and uh, Kai Whiting from Louvain University in Belgium. They added another circle that was the biosphere, the environment, animals, non-human animals. And the idea is that you try to bring every one of those concentric circles in one level. So you want to treat your family like you treat yourself. You want to treat your friends like you treat your family. And the sage is able to do that completely so that you arrive at this kind of, I don't know, let's call it instead of a unity of virtue, we'll call it a, a unity of worth or something, a unity of, a unity of value or something like that. One of the, the practical things that I struggle with with improv is to be a good listener, to be receptive. And I think that this is key to coming up with how you're going to live an ethical life that ideally you are receptive. You are in the moment. You are paying attention. You're sensitive to all that goes around you. But a lot of that, what goes into an intentional ethics is I've thought a lot about the rules that I should follow. And so I'm constantly checking with the rule book in myself. And I think this is what makes me resistant to labeling myself a stoic or a Marxist, or a Christian, or any sort of label, because I don't want to be boring in that way. That if you hear about Ayn Rand's, this is always the person I pick on, but like notes she put in margins of other people's books. And it's all just like, you know, you're not actually listening to the person, what this person, that you're comparing what is written in the book to the thing that you think you've already figured out. I already have all the answers. And I just need to then say yes, no, yes, no. There's a lot of critique now about that this is how maybe young students might read literature now with regard to, I'm very sure about social justice issues. And so I'm just going to read this book with a simple, does this meet the standard that's in my head or not? And that could, you know, it passed for academic writings in some circles to just point out those failings and not actually to engage the outside world at all. Uh, which I think is highly problematic. Uh, I think that we've, so Stoicism, I said, is a virtue ethics-based philosophy. And I think a lot of people think that has to be in contention with a rights-based system. It's my position, and I think it would also be the Stoics position, the ancient Stoics position that, not to speak for all contemporary Stoics, I'm certainly not doing that, but I think it would have been the opinion of the ancients that you need to have rights-based ethics, you need to have virtue-based ethics, but the one that is probably the base of that pyramid, if we call it that, is probably virtue ethics. Because if you have people who 
do not care about developing a virtuous character, becoming good people. And then you have those people making your laws and such and setting the standards, then you really run the risk of probably rather quickly. And I think, I think that's, I mean, I don't, I don't have any fantasies that anyone in our political institutions are particularly interested in becoming good people, right? That, that seems extremely rare, as rare as the Phoenix, maybe, <laughs> to go back to the Stoic saying. It does seem that no one who makes all our rules and laws, it doesn't seem like any of them are interested in doing anything more than appealing to whoever it is that's helping to keep them in a position of making the rules. And I think part of that is because... It's very it, cynical. <laughs> it's, it's very cynical. Uh, but I think that... Why don't you part go of poop in is, the street, Tanner? <laughs> Such a cynic. I, I think part of that is because we don't really talk about virtue with kids anymore. I've said this before, but when I was growing up, I turned 40 in a couple of months. Uh, so when I was growing up in the, I guess, early 90s, late 80s, we had a book series called Value Tales. And it was like, we'd have Harriet Tubman on the front of it. And it was the value of bravery. Or it would have, you know, Benjamin Franklin. And it would be the value of inventiveness. And it talked about these kind of subordinate virtues and some of the cardinal virtues, like the value of wisdom, of bravery, of justice, of courage. And I don't see that kind of discussion happening anymore in the education of the younger generations, which is part of, you know, I think I said, I told you guys before we started recording that practical stoicism appeals to people who are in Gen Z and what is now being called Gen Alpha. And I think that's important because I want kids to start thinking now about what matters the most is whether or not you're a good person, because that's going to, it's going to inform literally everything else. So yeah, when, when we teach our kids anything or when we read to our kids, I would hope that a portion of the literature, not all of it, but a portion of it would be about why it's important to be good and what being good means. And I feel like we see less of that today than we did when I was a kid. Of course, I'm biased, right? <laughs> as a, there is, as a, as a parent with young children, there is some, maybe not as much, or it's, it comes across in different ways. But I've always felt like, you know, the rules don't jump off the page and enforce themselves. Someone is doing it. The law is the Constitution isn't going to magically step out of the box and say something that we mm -hmm. all like adjudicate a d disagreement. And we all go, well, that's right. We all agree right. to that, you know, and then ultimately <laughs> it's going to be up to, to people. And if you, you know, I'll tell people sometimes in, here, here in Chicago, they, try to, they want to get improv team together. They want to get a group together. And I think, well, I know this guy is pretty funny. Oh, man, this, these two ladies over here, they're, they're real fun to play with. And I'm always thinking to myself, you should pick people to work with that you wouldn't mind being caught in an elevator with. Mm-hmm. Not that they necessarily are funny or the most talented or the most stage worthy, but the people whose company you actually enjoy because they're going to drive you crazy. Otherwise, if you have a, a sound community, well, then the proper decisions will be made. You know, the right decisions. I don't know. Maybe this is the kind of, I wouldn't say the ill defined or, or the idea of virtue can be perhaps purposefully ill defined or purposefully left a little ambiguous mm -hmm. uh, because you can't have the foresight to consider all possibilities uh, and have rules for all contingencies. That's unreasonable. I got a little rambly, but I agree with this idea that a, a society of good people doesn't really need laws. Labor unions don't exist because labor unions are awesome. They exist because other people are cruel. Right. Uh, <laughs> and if we were all super generous with each other and reasonable, we wouldn't necessarily need some of the laws and rules that we have. Though in the abstract, I like this idea of teaching about virtue rather than just behaviors. That's not how I taught my kids. Maybe negatively. So I don't generally drink. 
And I told my kids, like, drinking makes you in that moment dumber. Do you want to be dumb, dumber? And I think that works. Like they are now in college or my son's graduated college and have for the most part or entirely just stayed away from alcohol for if not that, you know, so, you know, it'd be strange if, if talking about vice and avoiding vice is more mm-hmm. effective than talking about virtue and achieving virtue. But I feel like that there's at least an argument to be made that make the kids do the right thing. Yes. And understand why they should do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And that they will develop the virtues naturally. Whereas saying, be more generous. You should be more generous. You should be, you should feel generosity. It's not yes. enough that you just share with your sister. I want you to want to share with your sister. Like that's not going to be helpful. That's going to be something that's going to be internalized only slowly, if at all. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the way that that is achieved is when your son or daughter holds the door for the person behind them, you make note of the fact that they did that and you say, "That's I'm so proud of you for doing that. You're not teaching these things in the language of stoicism or in the language of virtue. In fact, that's a challenge that we're dealing with right now. We're creating a tabletop game for both adults and a child version of it. And we're calling the child one mini sages. And so I can't talk too much about what the game is because I don't want to give it away, but it's but it helps kids to figure out how to match certain virtues and subordinate virtues using different languages, not languages, but using different language than virtue plain out to apply to things like lost toy. You've broken a lamp, you know, and what virtue can you assign to that action or what action can you assign to that issue so that you can gain a virtue card? Again, we're using different language so as not to make it very, I don't know, stoicism centric. We're, we're ultimately just trying to teach the idea that it's important to introspect and to use some of your introspection to solve problems thoughtfully. And I think we might be the first card game to do that. Maybe not. I'm probably speaking out of class there to say that. Uh, But something that the Stoics say, in fact, of children is that you are not supposed to, and I really like this, as somebody who came into Stoicism in like 2014, 2015, as a general interest, after having hosted a podcast called The No Godcast, where I had long-form interviews with people like Ray Comfort and Sean Carroll and like had these conversations with people who talked about faith or the lack thereof and why. To come into Stoicism after that, I really liked that they said, we don't think that you should be teaching philosophy, as it were. They were specifically talking about Stoicism, but philosophy in general to children under, I think it was like 14 to 16 or something. was like It depended on the kid, but that was like a general age range. And I like that because I remember when I came away from doing the atheist stuff, that something that bothered me a lot was that people of, let's say, Abrahamic face or other face would try to get it into their kids as soon as humanly possible with with the terminology and with the words instead of what you're saying, Mark, uh, with the just letting them know they've done the right thing and not putting a name on it or a label on it and just trying to cultivate them in that direction uh, without telling them they had to be Christian or they had to be a Stoic or they had to be any other ism that, that you might want your kids to turn out to be. Bill, as somebody that actually still has young kids, what, uh, there's definitely... I think part of that is tribe building. You know, this is who we are. This is, we are a family that goes to this church. This is what we will, you know, I don't think all parents have such a, a deep, the idea of not just being upfront in faith. You're a Baptist, so do this. This is what we do. I think many people don't see beyond that, if that makes, I don't want to be having a horrible, a, a cynical indictment. <laughs> of other my, my cynicism is spreading <laughs> yeah, yes it is uh, but I, I will say this idea of rewarding children 
and how we reward children is definitely changing in the, in the mainstream and rewarding children when they do something they weren't necessarily supposed to do or, or when you just see them acting or, or behaving in a good way to making sure to reward them and not just call them awesome or you're the best or, you know, it's like you chose to do something good here. And that's great because you made a choice to do something good as opposed to you're good, you're awesome, you're great, you're special. There is some of that in the child rearing literature these days. I wonder how you guys feel about, so I don't believe that this is unique to Stoicism, although I might be wrong about that, but the idea of the cosmopolis and cosmopolitan thinking that we are all part of, I think what some people would call the new world order, <laughs> but, but what the Stoics just think of as a world city, that we're all citizens of the earth and we should kind of behave and act that way. Now, of course, there are reasons that the ancient Greeks would have felt that way. But I wonder if you think it has a practical application in, in today's world. Should we be thinking of ourselves, now I'm interviewing you, should we be thinking of ourselves as cosmopolitans? Do you think there's a benefit to that? Short answer, yes. Long answer, boy, the things that affect my day-to-day -day life versus someone who's living in the jungles of Papua New Guinea are real different. And my cosmopolitan choices, their cosmopolitan choices may not even look the same, may, may be they can even be reconciled. I, I don't even know. And it, it may be a little presumptuous of me to presume that I understand what their life is like. I think that's the, there's a lot of different people out there. There are practical difficulties in trying to think, regard the entire earth as my circle of concern. But as a moral baseline, yeah, that should be a no brainer that there's, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's no moral justification to America first or yeah. Okay. To my family first, because that's, people that I actually have a responsibility that I've undertaken as part of my projects, but I have not undertaken any... As part of your projects? I, I also laughed at that. <laughs> that's, a, that's sort of a your philosophy, oh. a philosophy uh, term of art, I feel like. That's how <laughs> ethicists sometimes talk about the various commitments that we have taken on. Fair um, enough. You've you know, talked your way So my children are projects in that sense. They are a thing <laughs> that if I... Different than if I just knocked somebody up and then never saw... <laughs> I love the idea of Mark's son or daughter calling him up and being like, you just called us a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zeno wrote, himself wrote a republic. Plato wrote a republic. Apparently a lot of people wrote republics, their ideal idea of what society could be. And there are some theories as to why uh, Stoicism didn't really, there was a big gap in Stoicism after the, the later Roman Stoics. And there are two theories about that, at least that I know of. The first being that Epictetus made such a big deal about, look, it's not the reading, it's not just the didactic, it's also the practice. And if I had to choose one, I guess the practice is more important. So people started to stop writing about Stoicism and just try to live it. Of course, it only takes a couple generations for them there to be no text for you to learn how exactly you're supposed to act. But the second idea is that Zeno's Republic is a, essentially a utopian dream world, right? It's utopian anarchism. And so the idea was that the Romans did not like that idea. And so they did everything they could to get Stoic thought quickly. I mean, Marcus was, I think, the last of what are called the five good emperors, or maybe they use the word great. And there's a theory that part of the reason for that is that Stoicism is just too extreme of an example for people to actually live a practical life by. I disagree with that, but I can definitely see that perspective being held by some people, especially by the Roman Senate. <laughs> Is there, do we have time for a, a second improv scene to sort of wrap this up? To, we to, can do a real short one, I think. think of, sure. I don't know if Tanner or Mark, you would like the special job to do the special job and try it on and see what it's like. Are we talking about the improv or are we talking about the, the an improv, improv? An improv thing, an improv thing. The special job of reacting instantly to... Well, it's, uh, well it, it's a little bit more than that. 
but I can put it in the chat to whomever would like the special job. Tanner, would you like the special job? I'll take try the special, special. Yeah, I'll try the special job. I'll be in my dude. size. I have no job. Is, is it a plus size special job? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm text. I'm sending a, a thing to you through the thing. I am without things. I see no things. Get used to it. <laughs> I would prefer to have the things, but I'm okay with not having the things. If the All things right, are taken the last back, thing. Is this, does this make sense? And you might look back to the airplane and say, "Oh yeah, I think I could see how Bill did that." And let's just see what happens. Let's see, let's see what happens here. Mark, you ready? To, I can start this one, Mark. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Oh gosh, I want to. I want to put it in the break room, Mark. I put so many scenes in the dang old break room at the, at the office. I can't do that anymore. Uh, <laughs> let's do this. Let's do this. Look, before we get started today, guys, this is the first day of Christmas rush. Thanks for coming in early, but uh, we've got a lot of clothes to sell and. Uh, I just need everybody. Really just just tell me what you want me to do, man. I really couldn't care less about any of this. Well, yeah, just be on point. Just be on point. You know, we're going to have a, a lot of customers here today. The mall's opening up about an hour early. And uh, apparently there was a circular in the, in the paper that we were going to have some sales. All right. Not my problem. Not my problem. Let's just, uh, let's just do it. All right. I mean, I mean our, we're going to, we're going to be busy. So, I mean, it is, it is, it's all of our problems. We're going to be busy today. Yeah. Tanner, that doesn't seem like a very good positive attitude that we need to have uh, smiles on our faces when the customers come in. Or else, uh, you know, it's not even Christmas. I mean, I feel like my job here is to make sales and I can do that. So I'm just going to do that as far as smiling and whatnot. I don't think that's going to have a real effect on whether or not I I sell anything to people. People need stuff. They're here to buy stuff. I'm going to give them stuff and uh, anything else to whatever. If you can do that without being grouchy, I'm okay with that. Okay. I just feel, I feel a little triggered by the bad vibes going on in the store. I feel like the, the store to move it at its optimum efficiency, there needs to be good feelings all around. That's your opinion. I do fine with bad vibes. Okay, y'all, let's let's just not, we don't even have to interact, okay? One of y'all can work at the front. Mark, you want to work in the front? That's great. Tanner, you can work the register in the dressing rooms. That's fine. Sounds all cool. Right. We got some blue jeans to sell, all right? County seat is going to be selling some blue jeans today. And if Mark, you need a high five or a pep talk, I'll give it to you. That's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty self-sufficiently. If you, if, if I'm not going to be supported in the workplace in, in a good mood, I can just do it myself. Cause well, I just tell me, what, tell me what you need. I control, tell me what you need. I control my own, my own attitudes. It's nice if other people are helpful in that, but I can, uh, I've got some, uh, powder in my pocket that I can just kind of snort and, uh, I will Mark, be all whoa, by myself. Whoa, 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 whoa. No. Do we need to sing the county seat song? Do we need, what, what, what do we need to do to get you? Ready to play short of it's just licamade. I mean, it's, it's, it's licamade. I, I, I like to get a, just a shot of pure sugar before the customers come in. Just makes me feel like, man, I can't wait to help them. Yeah. What, I mean, what's your problem here, Bill? Who cares if he has a little stick of sugar? Let him, let him snort well, some I sugar. Thought he was, I thought he was talking about like cocaine. When you first well, if he was, it doesn't really matter. Does it really matter if he was? I mean, let's just it sell these matter. jeans. It you want to sell matter. these jeans? Here we are talking about anything but selling jeans. Let's sell well, some if, jeans. Well, if, if I need some jeans. Well, you get an employee discount, you know? So just refold what you don't buy, all right? And it does matter if Mark's doing Coke, all right? That matters a lot. Are you kidding? It's like liability. Maybe, no, maybe, I, maybe for your liability or something. I mean, now that I know about it, I don't know. You could harass the customers. You could go, you know, scare them off. You know, I don't, I don't want that. Sounds like a customer problem. I think if you're, no matter what you're on, you control what your reaction to that is. Like that's there might wrong. Be, that is there might that be is that is the acid going through your veins. But like that's just a, a fact. Your attitude is independent of that fact. 
I'm going to push back on that real strong, real strong. I don't want any illegal drugs. I don't want any uh, like y'all can have a have a joint in the back alley on your break because that's legal now. That's the line. That's the line. What a weird line. You just draw the line at weed at legal. I I, I draw the line on our shift, but he can't do coke or pixie sticks. I mean, weed drags you down. It makes you in some some places of business. That might be the perfect way if you if you're at a beach shop, but for our business, we got to be up on top of those customers, you know, really presenting the product and uh, with with a very wide stare. Look, I, I mean, proposed. A- I mean, I don't care, but I'm just curious for Bill's sake, Mark. How many times have you done coke at work? I mean, how many sales have we made this year? I mean, it's probably. Like you're saying there's a direct Coke to gene sales ratio. <laughs> I think if we, uh, if we drew, uh, you know, the secrets of business success, uh, it's, it's pretty, I, I'm not hearing this. I can control, you know, what goes into my body and I can control how I react to that. But what would help is if, you know, I just had a, a loving and supportive team, maybe we could all do a group hug or something before we get going. And then I, I wouldn't feel the need for substances. I can go either way. I mean, I can hug you. You can hug me. We can just get to work. Whatever. Okay. Yeah, I have proposed a solution where the two of you would not have to interact for the whole rest of the day. And we get everybody else in the middle of the store. You'll never have to see each other. All right. I, are we done? I mean, I've, this chair is hurting my ass. Can we get out of here? I think I can probably, the first four customers in here, they will want to hug me. And I'm going to make that happen. So uh, let's go. Let's go to it. Let's put you on. Let's put you on register, Mark. We're gonna put you on register. Where is HR? <laughs> yeah, we did it. We'll stop there. We'll stop there. So that was a- great, Tanner. Oh, thank you, thank you. I felt more. I felt more relaxed. I feel like I could do this for a living now. Honestly. Well, there is a, there is another improv thing if you want to <laughs> read about it. But this idea that when you when you know who you are, it's easier, and who you are isn't just what your name is and it, the fact that you're sitting on an airplane, but mm-hmm. you understand the person that you are. You mm-hmm. understand that you're this whatever guys. Oh, I can be that guy. I've met that guy. I understand that guy. I can be them all day if I need to. Am I allowed to say what my chosen emotion was? Totally. Oh, okay, cool. Mine was was laughter. I was just going to laugh. That was mine. Whatever Mark says, I'm just going to laugh. I was going to, I was trying to be indifferent because indifference is another thing that's really misunderstood about stoicism. And I think Mark, you were trying to do dichotomy of control, right? You're like, ah, I can control it no matter what. Well, and that is again, kind of the point that, you know, I don't want to make generalizations about anything, right? That's sort of the point of the partial examined life is we're reading a specific text. And yeah. so we can react to the thing that was said there. Whereas if you're like, what do you in general think of stoicism or Christianity? Or like, you're never going to say anything that is useful. But one mm. of the things that I brought up before is the, the concept of overwriting my brain is an overestimation of how much you can change about yourself. 100%. And, you know, I don't want to knock, like if, so, if people find this useful, Man, people have so many problems, like whatever gets you through the night, whatever, whatever helps mm-hmm. you lose the weight, be less depressed, whatever your goals are, I will not begrudge people those solutions. But as a philosopher, I feel like there is a, you know, having a sort of one dimensional philosophy, which again is probably just the starting point that says, I control my own attitudes. It doesn't even matter. The facts don't matter. My attitudes are divorced from those. And so mm. I don't know that like, you know, one of the classic examples of, you know, my children are probably going to die and I should be used to that and I should be okay <laughs> with if they do, you know, not that I won't mm-hmm. grieve, but like, 
you know, of course you would want to, if something like that happens, you don't want to have to kill yourself because you're so invested. But like, if you gave even a single thought to, I need to, you know, every night before when my child goes to bed, this is an Epictetus thing, you know, whisper in my own ear, like that kid could be dead in the morning. I should be prepared for that. (laughs) There seems so just something absolutely insane you know what that reminds me of? That, yeah. It reminds me of uh, Princess Bride. <laughs> Good night, Wesley. Likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> but yes, this is something that comes up a lot, that the idea that we detach ourselves so successfully that when the bad thing happens, and Ryan Holiday probably talks about it because he likes to use the Latin phrases. He probably talked about premeditatio malorum, which is the premeditation of calamity or bad things or malicious things. So that when they happen, obviously you're going to cry. And Marcus was known for being somewhat of a crybaby, honestly. <laughs> if you read uh, Donald Robertson's Verissimus graphic novel, he's done a really great job of painting him as a, as a child and an adolescent coming into power. Uh, and he, he seems to have cried a lot. And the Stoics, so talking about what we can control, like if we were on acid, right, or if we were on cocaine mm-hmm. or something like that, a lot of people think that the Stoics believed that we can control all of our emotions. And that's that's actually not true. So there are... I don't know if the right word is primordial emotions, but there are like these pre-pre-emotions where our rational faculty is not involved in deciding how to feel about something. You walk around a corner and someone jumps out and scares you, and before you've identified that it's your wife playing a prank on you, you're scared. And the Stoics don't say that you can somehow master that and not become scared. What they do say is that once you have an impression of what's going on, you make a rational decision to assent to that impression. And the reason that Stoics can sometimes seem unemotional is that we're tasked with the idea of looking at the impression we have of a situation and determining what the appropriate emotion to assent to is. So when our wife scares us and we immediately get the impression, oh, okay, it's my wife. She's playing a practical joke on me. There is an appropriate kind of assent to, okay, all right, all right, I can calm down now. It was just a joke. Like that's assenting to a proper impression or assenting to an impression properly. Uh, Whereas it might not be proper to be really upset with your wife or to continue to be scared, for example. So the Stoics say that not all emotions, but most emotions are related to a cognitive decision or judgment of the thing that we're having an emotion about. And there is a way to do that properly, appropriately, and a way to do that inappropriately. So it's not that we think you shouldn't cry. Sometimes crying is the appropriate emotion. It's instead that we should make sure that we have a really accurate view of what's going on so that our response is an appropriate response. And I think that that's part of the logic branch of Stoicism. But I think we can see it play out rather poorly in today's world because because people are assenting to poor impressions, they kind of get sent down this multi-forked path where if you assent to believing something that is untrue is true, then it makes it easier to do it again. Then it makes it easier to do it again. And then you think Hillary Clinton is sex trafficking children in a pizza hut, right? It's hard to blame the person when they've not been taught how important it is to have an accurate view of the world. So Stoics look at emotion as a way of making sure you have an accurate view of what the heck is going on so you don't wind off way off in left field when the rest of society is hopefully hopefully getting along pretty well with itself. And I think we see that playing out in a pretty dismal, abysmal way currently. I was actually going to ask a question about how would you define in today's terms the anti-Stoic? And I think you may you may have. Now I realize that to a philosopher anti-stoic is different than just the conversational 
And so, you know, could you give us a thumbnail of the anti, anti-Stoic? Or something that's antithetical to Stoicism is... Sure, I mean, especially if it's replete in the world. Oh, sure. Mark's got point of can order I, here. Can I throw out one, which is the romantic? I don't want to be shielded from pain. I want to put myself out on the line. I want to risk that this is my way of living in the moment is to not be constantly consulting the rule book of virtue in my head, but to live naturally and fully. And that is at least one response. And I think there's a lot of that in Nietzsche, the sort of the Nietzschean response to stoicism, that there's something cool and calculating about stoicism or any attempt to rewrite the operating system of your mind, to to make (laughs) yourself self-consciously more virtuous, that there is something that is going to be Again, maybe some people really need it because they're just Mm -hmm. out of control. But for people, Nietzsche would say, people with enough strength do not need this crutch. That Stoicism or Christianity or anything, they are a crutch. If your leg is broken, you need a crutch, but throw (laughs) the damn crutch away at some point. So two things there. To be a romantic is not antithetical to Stoicism at all because it's appropriate to love. Uh, That is an appropriate... Mm -hmm. They say that the sage would only love and laugh. Like that is the... You can think of it as like the happy fat Buddha, although there's just, there's, there could be multiple, anybody could be a sage. It's not like a, it's not transcendental in that sense. I mean, Nietzsche is actually famous for railing against the romantics, as did Kierkegaard and like, you know, pretty much anybody. I'm still trying to get a handle on what historical romanticism actually amounts to. But at the very least, it seems like, you know, from the Dead Poet Society caricature that we have, it is that joy and suffering are invariably linked. And to reject the suffering and say, I can control the suffering, I can minimize the suffering, is to reject life itself. The Stoics would tell you, my interpretation, the thing that sets humans apart is their ability to fortune cast, right, future tell, and to ruminate and to reason. And because we have the ability to do that, we don't do, for example, what a honeybee does. A honeybee wakes up and does the honeybee thing, and they have a role and they have to do it. And they don't have a choice in doing it in as far as we know. And so they are acting in accordance to their natural, I'm going to say programming. I don't think it's a great word to use here, but I think it gets this, the idea across. Human beings, because we have rationale and, and reason and fortune casting and all that, we can't wake up and do a thing. There is no humanly programmed thing that we do. We have to instead make cognitive decisions to do things that are in alignment with nature. Stoics say live according to nature. Nature Mm -hmm. is God Mm -hmm. in Stoicism. And so the idea of just living without doing that, and Stoicism is an incredibly difficult, I think, philosophy to practice for this reason, that to throw away the reins that you have because of your reason and uh, your hegemonicon, as they would say, when you throw those away, you're doing something incredibly irresponsible because you cannot live according to nature without cognitively efforting to do so. And what do you think of, of that, podcast. Bill? <laughs> I kind of get it. You're saying that to be human is to have to think about what you want to do. Well, I mean, if you think that, as the Stoics thought that virtue was the only good, then in order to move towards virtue, you have to do that. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, Stoicism is the philosophy, or I'm not going to proselytize. It works for me, and I think it's important, and I wish everybody would adopt mm-hmm. it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of continental philosophies. I'm more of an anal- analytical philosophy guy, which is probably why I'm not in academia currently or have ever been. But I'm also a big fan of virtue ethics-based philosophies for the reason that I think it asks us to do something that 
it's not in vogue, right? Because I think when most people hear virtue, they think of God. And there are huge red flags for that now. I mean, if anybody starts preaching about God, you kind of almost always shut them out, or most people seem to. And I think that there's been something lost because of, I guess, in the execution of virtue ethics, and we can take Christianity as an example, there have been some people who have been real poor executioners of it, unfortunately, and they've built establishments and institutions, and that stuff has been ingrained in a really negative way. But I don't think the concept of virtue, as the Stoics understood it, would be problematic if it was practiced well. And I think that might be a criticism of Stoicism, in fact, is maybe it, maybe it's too impractical to be practiced well. Well, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I think you could say that of any philosophy, continental or otherwise, right? The test is in the practicing. The test is in the paying attention and the execution. And most people, and this is going to sound really cynical as well, most people are pretty lazy. They don't really want to put the effort into adopting a life philosophy, whatever it is. And I think that's why there is such heavy adoption of more of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it strictly nihilistic, but it's definitely at least pseudo nihilistic where people think, well, we're all going to die anyway. So what does it matter? As if something needs to be immortal for the things that we do to matter, right? And I think that's one of the reasons is that we're very utilitarian in our thinking. And the Stoics certainly were not utilitarian in their thinking. Uh, and I think that something's been lost in that, unfortunately. Push back ever so slightly on mass Please. laziness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not us. No, no, not the three of us, for, certainly. Or, or the listeners, or the fine listeners. Yeah, particularly yeah, so, the yes, ones that, that Patreon, are paying you. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Those are exceptionally <laughs> yeah. hardworking and driven individuals. Best uh, <laughs> Sages, in fact. Something I see a lot in my world, I wouldn't call laziness. I would call... Where do I put my bet? You know, you walk Mm -hmm. into a casino, you only got so many chips and you're constantly, you want to hedge your bet. You want to, it's hard to just say I'm all in on stoicism from step one. And and I think many people are living their lives hedging for their whole life and waiting for a clear message, an undeniable message. Perhaps it's a parent that gets terminally ill and you've got to go, you know, it's just like, doesn't necessarily have to be a good message. It doesn't have to be, hey, your screenplay got bought. You know, you should write more. It doesn't have to be that. It could be something somewhat negative, but just give me a dire- give me a sign. Give me a direction. And I, and I think much of the philosophies, especially in our society, where we're not necessarily pushing kids into religion or telling them you are a Stoic, you are a Baptist, you are a whatever. I'm going to say at least people a little rudderless, but rudderlessness is something I see left, right, and center in, in my world. Well, yeah, the people yeah. who are the biggest, totally agree uh, with that. you know, young, lawless, <laughs> drug-taking, whatever, risk-takers often become the most z- zealous yeah. followers, they find their whether thing. it's religion or, you know... Vegetarianism or anything. there's yeah, any, yeah. any uh, some subsection of your audience, Tanner, that you f- feel like was hungry for something, yes. and, and this is fulfilling... <laughs> You know, maybe they're going to be a little too into it. uh, Well, I love, so I love that you have brought, I don't know if you're, you're quasi joking here, but, but I love that you've said that because what I think of Gen Z and the younger part of millennials, I I guess as well, uh, and Gen Alpha is that they actually care a lot, but they don't know how or what to care about in particular. And I think this is what makes them so vulnerable would insinuate something negative. So I don't want to use that word, but I think it's what makes them moldable by uh, various activist movements and such. I think one of the reasons that 
outrage culture, as some people call it, started with the younger millennial generation. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because they are looking for something to latch onto. And when they find it, they tend to be less concerned about whether or not they've latched onto it well or understand it well and seem to more so feed off the benefit of just having something to believe in. And when they don't have that, they seem to default into what I was talking about, this really nihilistic or pseudo-nihilistic view of the world where nothing matters. And like dank memes and, you know, lulls culture and stuff. And so I do view practical stoicism as being something to, you know, at least stop a young man in particular. We do have female listeners, but this is only 12% of our audience in total. And we've brought that up from eight after great (laughs) effort. It's very hard to do. Uh, unfortunately, for for some reason, it's hard to do. But we try to stop young men from being like short circuited by people like Andrew Tate, like, and he's you know he's kind of like Trump in that way, and that he he speaks confidently, and he's got a vision, and he's got cars, and he's got money, and he's smoking cigars, and he's got hot women, and you're like, well, that's the thing I should that's a something, that's something, and and we're definitely trying to get in the way of that because sure. I mean you know I don't want to speak too greatly of myself, but I, th- I think stoicism in our podcast is maybe just a skosh better than Andrew Tate. I hope. <laughs> low I was bar. having, to, I was having low to Google him to re- be reminded of who that is. But yes, I, <laughs> I recall the recent news stories about him now. Well, we've reached the, the conclusion where now we have to decide. We've got all these people who are uh, listening to this. They've been exposed perhaps to stoicism for the first time. And maybe they're kind of new to improv and they need to decide which one to put the whole of their energy into for the rest of their lives. So we <laughs> Where need to should they commit philosophy versus improv. Which set of ideas won this discussion in your mind, Tanner? Which one will you be most affected by? Yeah. If that's realizing they are both very financially lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're rolling in dollars. Well, over we could just put that to the side because we, yeah. we all understand that that's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that the appropriate thing for me to do here is to say that I've learned something pretty valuable about improv. And I like that it's been folded into the stoic idea of prosake and paying attention and being the practice of the thing you're trying to implement and become better in. So I will say that improv won this. And I'm very glad to have been part of it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tanner. Thanks. I sure learned yeah. a lot from you two today. And I learned a lot from, from y'all. And, and scene. scene. I hope you enjoyed the show. To learn more about philosophy versus improv, go to philosophyimprov.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the philosophy versus improv podcast feed, even if you're listening to this somewhere else. Or better yet, use one of our supporter feeds, which you can learn about at philosophyimprov.com slash support. Listening that way will remove all the ads, give you post-game chatting with me and Bill and usually our guests for nearly every episode, supporter-exclusive bonus discussions, like the one we just released before this episode, and if you support us through patreon.com slash philosophyimprov, you'll see links from most of our recent episodes to the unedited video experience, which is objectively better than just listening. Thanks. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.